welcome once again to EW10's Bookmark. I'm Doug Keck, your host. Our guest author is Professor John Lawrence Hill. The book, After the Natural Law, How the Classical Worldview Supports Our Modern Moral and Political Values, published by our friends at Ignatius Press, available through our EW10 Religious Catalog, EW10RC.com, all things Catholic. Welcome to Bookmark. Thank you. John, good to be here. Good to have you. Uh, people would remember from seeing you on with Father Mitch on, on the live show. And uh, what are you doing when you're not writing books? Oh, playing a little piano and, uh, and uh, doing some Orange Theory and weightlifting these days, trying to cut down the, the LBs. Well, so, how do you earn a living? I'm a law professor. Oh, okay. Yes, yes. Oh, you meant that. That's right. You well, gave me a very I, legalistic yeah. answer there. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, yes. And where do you teach? At uh, Indiana University in Indianapolis. It's the Robert H. McKinney, we're required to say, the School of Law uh, at Indiana University. And, mm -hmm. uh, and I, I teach constitutional law. So how many books have you actually written altogether? I've written several over the course of my uh, life. But uh, as I've sort of gone th through uh, my own trajectory, I wrote a book about vegetarianism when I was a vegetarian um, back mm -hmm. 30 years ago. But uh, but um, yeah, I've written six books, and I'm working on a book now um, called Why We're Losing the Constitution. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, let me ask you, how did you decide to write on this particular topic? Was this something, is this something you teach, and, and it was something you could format into a book? How did it come about? You know, I became fascinated with the fact that there were so many contradictions in my own worldview at the time, and, and I think for that matter, the worldview of uh, typical liberal or secular thinkers, many of my colleagues certainly, uh, we believe in human rights. Mm -hmm. uh, we want to believe in human rights, and yet uh, most of my colleagues, in, in, at a point in my own life, mm -hmm. myself, didn't believe in a transcendent moral foundation. It just we sort of had these values and these beliefs without a foundation, and uh, it's part of what led me to the church. Now, in the introduction here, you you talk about the idea of Friedrich Nietzsche and the idea that, you know, God is dead. I mean, a lot of us remember that shirt that said, Nietzsche, God is dead, and then yeah. God, Nietzsche is dead. Yeah. Uh, and also the fact, as you point out here, that he, he wrote those words six years before he ended up losing his mind, basically. Yeah. Yes. But what does he have to do with where we are today? Well, in a sense, he's sort of the father of modern 20th century nihilism. I mean, the idea that there really is no absolute truth. Everything is a matter of perspective, perspectivalism, mm -hmm. as he called it. Um, and uh, in, in a general sense, he saw very clearly that the very idea of truth is connected to the idea of God. You can't get rid of one without the other. Um, and, and so, of course, he wanted to get rid of both. Why would you want to get rid of truth? Good question. Yes. Um, he, in his mind, it was because it led back to, you start asking, what is the truth? You start asking for consistency in your answers and a uh, sense of logic. You're led back to the sense that there may be an order to the universe and indeed a, a natural law. And well, now you're at God's doorstep. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, let me ask you, uh, now this guy Ockham, was he a barber? Because he's something about a razor with him. I hear it all the time. He's always using his razor. Yes, Who is this guy? yeah, he used it indiscriminately. Oh, yes, okay. yeah. Yeah, 14th century monk. Uh, was excommunicated for a while. I think he was later He was rehabilitated, you he said. He was, right? y yes, yeah. yeah. But he's really the one that sort of began to argue against this sort of classical worldview that had built up literally from Aristotle and Plato, pre-Christian thinkers, uh, into the Christian tradition, and the essence of it is 
that there are essences, uh, that, there, that each thing has a certain essence that makes it unique. Um, and he, he was really the one that began, I think, the modern sort of cavalcade down toward materialism and naturalism by attacking this idea. That there you, are, yeah, in fact, you say Occam is the true originator of modern thought. You go on to say, in Occam's wake, early modern thinkers, including Descartes, Locke, and Hume, slowly distilled form from matter, the soul from the body, and the moral law from the physical law, and God from the world. The soul became the mind, and the mind became matter in motion. Christianity withered into deism, and deism into atheism. Was that what they wanted to happen, or was just just a result of their searching? That's a great question, and no, they didn't. Uh, they uh, People like Locke and Descartes, believed in God, mm -hmm. they wanted to hold on to God, but they began to accept these certain philosophical premises, again, the rejection of essences and universals and the idea that we all have a, a telos. And so they were sort of increasingly led almost against uh, their inclinations toward these increasingly more uh, secular positions. That, you say the word telos, and you, yeah. you use it outside of a, some technical term yeah. for some uh, telephone equipment. Yeah. Uh, telos. Uh, but, and you talk about theology. Yes. And the first time you say, well, did they mean to say theology? But no, they're saying theology. What yeah. is that? So teleology, and that's yeah. really what Occam was attacking yeah. uh, at bottom. Teleology is the idea that not only is the wor world ordered, but everything in it is ordered, and we have a kind of purpose or a natural end, something toward which we, we strive or want to strive. And so it's this inward seeking for actualization. Mm -hmm. uh, that's the telos. Not Maslow's actualization, or is it? Uh, yeah, I think Maslow's is sort of a, a, a distant cousin of the original idea. Mm -hmm. yeah. You say, in a very strange way, we have come full circle. Contemporary debates about the meaning of mortality and the purpose of human life, particularly disagreements between moral relativists and moral realists echo eerily and revealingly the philosophical exchanges of Plato's time. How so? Yes. I think in a sense we have, we've come full circle and that the debates they were having in Plato and Socrates' time were debates about is there an objective morality? The sophists at the time were the thinkers who were saying, no, there's no objective morality. Truth is in the mind of the beholder, the eye of the beholder. Uh, everything is relativistic. And Plato and Socrates, Socrates, Plato and Aristotle were really the uh, philosophers who began to challenge that. And I think that's where we're at again now uh, with these debates. You say uh, to defend the classical worldview is rather to suggest that it is a far closer approximation of our own self-understanding than is the materialistic outlook with which the modern scientific quest is often conflated. You go on to say, the tradition which culminated with Aquinas also provides a far more plausible foundation for our modern moral political ideals for liberty, equality, dignity, and the sanctity of human life than do the succession of Hobbes, Locke, Descartes, and Kant. Well, let me ask you, I mean, is part of our problem is we don't really hear about too much about Aquinas outside of the church, uh, Plato not so much at all, or Aristotle outside of maybe connecting with Aquinas. Right. But, you know, we hear about Occam, and we hear about Hobbes, and we hear about Descartes, and yes. Kant, yes. and Locke. I think much of modern philosophy and philosophers, and particularly institutional philosophers, have, they dismiss, we don't know about the great philosophers who lived at the same time as Descartes or Locke or, or others who w were more faithful to the tradition. Those guys get forgotten. 
and and we have this sort of uh, a deterioration beginning with uh, really in the, the 17th century with um, modern with modern uh, moral and metaphysical thinking. Now you break up the book into two two sections. Why don't you talk about why you did that and how you broke it up? So the the first part is really a discussion of the development of the natural law tradition, um, and it goes back to uh, literally pre-Christian sources to Plato, Aristotle, even a little bit about pre-Socratic thinkers. I learned a lot, by the way, about the very earliest thinkers in, in writing the book. Um, uh, and, and so it's the development of the tradition up till uh, the 13th century in Thomas Aquinas. Part two is about the unraveling mm -hmm. that begins with Occam and Hobbes and ultimately even Descartes and Locke, who again believed in God, wanted to hold on to God, but are led increasingly away from, uh, by their philosophical assumptions. So when we talked about the natural law, is, is that what you were referring to in another way in this inherent feeling of where we're going or should be going or how we're supposed to live our lives or what? Yeah, natural law is the idea that the world is ordered mm -hmm. and, and, and the law isn't just, and this is crucial I think, we tend to think of law as out there and it's sort of coercive. But in the natural law tradition, the law is in us as well. It's, it's there by virtue of our conscience. It's there by virtue of our reason. We participate in the natural law. We are part of God's ordered world, and we participate in that way. Sometimes fully. you hear about discussions that you hear, uh, from the Supreme Court. You'll hear natural law gets brought up. Another thing called positivism. Yes. And that sounds really good, because why, why wouldn't we want to be positive? Yeah, what is right, that? Right. So positivism is the secular alternative to natural law, okay. and it really gets going in the late 19th century. And people like Oliver Wendell Holmes, who are you know revered jurists, really began to push that. Holmes laughed the natural law you know, off the out of court, shall we mm -hmm. say. Uh, he called it a brooding omnipresence in the sky, kind of making fun of it. He was a skeptic, and mm -hmm. a, really he was an atheist. So legal positivism is the idea that there, there is no underlying morality to the law. Uh, law is simply what a particular regime says it is. You can have good law and bad law, American law and Nazi law, uh, communist law, but Natural law believe, the natural law tradition holds that to be law in the truest sense, you have to partake or the, the rule has to partake of the deeper moral order. Mm -hmm. Positivists reject that. Right. And you talk about Occam and the rise of nominalism and we talk about Occam's razor. How does that relate to that? So he's the one who began to say there are no essences and universals. So he, he began the process of the sort of skepticism to say there aren't uh, classes of things. Mm -hmm. There aren't essences to things. Part of the natural law ideas that developed, particularly with Aquinas, was this idea that each thing has a certain essence. That essence tells us what its telos is, where it's, what its purpose is. Mm -hmm. The idea, I mean, to put it most maybe simply but also poetically, is that uh, the, the what of each thing is also its why. When you ask what, what is something really, what you're really asking is what is its nature, what is it meant to do? Mm -hmm. Occam began to lay the, 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 uh, the axe to those ideas. This I thought was interesting. In explaining uh, his perspective, you say, uh, similarly, John Kennedy and Robert Kennedy were real people, but the relationship of being a brother of each other is not a real thing, as Aristotle thought. Only things exist, not the relationships between and among them. Yes. 
So one of the things, and we're getting into the weeds philosophically here, but one of the things that philosophers will argue about is whether things like space and time really exist, whether things like colors, red, uh, largeness, are, are they things that exist or are they just words we use to, and Occam began the process of saying none of those things exist, mm -hmm. including relationships between things, the brother of, before and after, but you wind up with some very bizarre consequences if you reject those. So the natural law tradition, mm -hmm. Aristotle in particular, began to, to uh, you know, argue that there is a sense in which all of these things are real. They may not be material, but they're real. And Occam sort of leads the way away from that to modern materialism. Right. Sometimes when people think about it, they think the simplest solution is probably the correct solution. It's kind of the way people think about it. Right. right? And sometimes that's true. Right. Uh, sometimes the, the, the Occam's razor is really the most elegant solution is, 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 is correct. Mm -hmm. The problem in this case is that his solution here doesn't really explain the world. Mm -hmm. Well, here's a ghost in the machine. Now, that was an album by the police, I believe. <laughs> uh, and you talk about Plato's primitive view of the soul as a ghost in the machine. Yeah. Is that kind of like a dualistic thing that we're dealing with today? Yes. Okay. Yes. Yes. And so Plato's view, and Descartes comes back to it later on, is that the body is one thing, the soul is another. The soul sort of inhib in, in, inhabits the body. That's not the view of the natural law tradition. That wasn't Aquinas's view. He had a much more integrated view of body and soul. Which and the Catholic Church has as well, absolutely. right? Absolutely, yes. Right. Yeah. You, you, and, and we always hear about Descartes, there, think, therefore I am. And right. Descartes is considered the father of modern rationalism, one of the two approaches to epistemology that succeeded the scholastic theory of knowledge. The other approach is empiricism, and that was championed by John Locke. What's yes. the difference between those two? In essence, empiricism puts in, uh, the emphasis on experience, on sensory experience. Can I see it? Can I feel it? Mm -hmm. Can I smell it? If, if you can't, it doesn't exist. The rationalists did believe that there was, that we were, we were given some truths by virtue of our reason. And one of the differences is, and this is important to natural law theory and to the Catholic tradition, Descartes and the rationalists held on to the idea that there could be what they call innate truths, things that we're born knowing. Well, that's central to the idea of conscience, that there are certain truths built into us, developed by experience and education, but we have them in the beginning. Locke was the father of tabula rasa. You don't right. have anything unless you're taught it by experience. You talk about the fact of Locke and the decline of the natural law, and you talk about two contrasting views about Locke. What were they? Well, so Locke is, in a sense, the last important or significant or influential natural law thinker. But by the time he's using the term, he's using it in a degraded sense, I would say. Mm -hmm. So he's the last, but he still holds on to his second treatise of government is really at the heart of our Declaration of Independence, mm -hmm. that, that there are inalienable truths, that there are realities that are uh, deeper, truths that are deeper. That's the natural law lock. At the same time he was writing the second treatise, he was working on his more, shall we say, academic philosophical uh, book. Mm -hmm. And that is a book that's completely skeptical of the natural law and, and of, um, of many of the precepts, including conscience. He mm -hmm. said, there, there is no conscience. Just look at an army invading a city, what they do to the inhabitants. Goes, natural law is nothing but uh, death and destruction. 
So he was torn, I mm -hmm. think, as he's writing both of these books. He was a man, and this goes back to your earlier question, mm -hmm. he believed in God. Uh, he died having the Psalms read to him, yet he had a hard time reconciling it with what he believed philosophically. He couldn't make sense of free will, mm -hmm. for example. In, in that second book, um, a treatise on human understanding, he has a 60-page discussion of trying to make sense of free will. Maybe this works. Uh, I don't think so. Maybe that works. No, that doesn't quite. And at the end of it, he says, well, actually, in a letter to a friend, he wrote, you know, if it be possible for God to make a free act, then it's, it's the truth, but I see not the way of it. Mm -hmm. So... Now you talk about Locke's most devastating revision of the natural law tradition, however, was a result of his individualism. You say, with Hobbes, Rousseau, he shows up, mm. other social contract thinkers, Locke helped invert the classical understanding of relationship between the individual and the state. How so? Well, because with previous thinkers, and particularly with the natural law tradition, what makes government legitimate is that it serves the common good. Locke is really uh, the, among the first thinkers to say, no, it all depends on human agreement. It doesn't matter whether people are agreeing to the right thing, it's all about human agreement. The social contract is, is the basis for that. Then you go on to Hobbes, and you, Hobbes's materialism was a rude rebuke to the classical understanding of the person. Human consciousness was for him nothing more than matter in motion. Yes. Hobbes was a materialist, and he drew all the consequences. I mean, Locke is still somewhere on the way between Aquinas and Hobbes. Locke wanted to hold on to the soul and personhood and all this. He couldn't make sense of it, but he wanted to hold on. Hobbes really is a, a materialist. And, and that goes back to, you say, Hobbes' moral th uh, theory was like Epicurus, and mm -hmm. he's one of the early ones you talk about, and I guess the yeah. sophists as well, kind of. Exactly. There is no objective morality. There's only what we agree to. And that's why Hobbes is also, he's not yeah. only a materialist, and I think this is a real, uh, very important for modern audiences to think about. His materialism leads to his totalitarianism. Mm -hmm. The state decides everything. Leviathan. The Leviathan, yes. Right. And you also talk about here, I thought it was interesting, Hobbes' moral theory, like ever goes, 2,000 years ago, was a matter of rational self-interest. There are no eternal moral truths in the state of nature. Quote, unquote, every man has a right to everything, even to one another's body. Yeah. It's yeah. pretty extreme. He used the word right in the sense to mean simply whatever you could take. Mm -hmm. It's uh, certainly not what we normally mean by right, but uh, yes. And as you said earlier, Occam and Locke believed in God mm -hmm. and, and, and to some degree his law, while Hobbes did not. Hobbes is, yeah, there's a lot of debate about what he really thought. He wrote at a time when he couldn't come out and, you know, announce his atheism. But he did say things like, uh, if God exists, he has to be a physical body. Mm -hmm. Because there, his philosophy leads in the direction of there is, there's no such thing as a spiritual body. That's a contradiction in terms. So he throws all of that out. Well, you also talk about later in the disintegration of moral truth, another name pops up, Immanuel Kant. Mm. We hear his name come up all the time. You talk about formulated his most basic principle of morality in several versions of what's called the categor categorical imperative. The first version was, I am never to act otherwise than that I can also will that my maxim can become a universal law. Yeah. And then so act as to treat humanity, uh, whether in your own person or any person, always at the same time as an end and ne never merely as a means. Yeah. So what, what did he mean by the categorical? categorical imperative. Well, it was his way of sort of trying to provide a, a principle for morality. One of the big criticisms of Kant is that 
even unlike utilitarianism or, or other forms of moral thought, Kant's theory seems very fuzzy in its consequence. Well, where does it lead? And he tries to provide this sort of principle. What he's really trying to do is split the atom. He wants to keep the moral truth, but, he, but with the modernists, he wants to insist that the moral truth is in here, that I decide. Mm. Right, and you talk about that the inner person that slide into moral subjectivism, the emphasis on the moral act rather than on the actor. Yeah. Uh, yes. You talk about moral Pharisaism, Pharisaism, the emphasis shifted especially with utilitarianism to the outward performance of the action, the observance of external rules, or the achievement of certain consequences. Now, you know, utilitarian, nobody likes utilitarian, everybody, <laughs> but yet we seem to live in a world that's full of it. Yes. It, 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 Secularists are inevitably utilitarians because there's no other way to make, unless they're total relativists or nihilists. nihilists. Utilitarianism was the halfway house between uh, a real objective, God-given morality and modern nihilism. It was a way to say, yes, there is an objective morality, um, but it's simply the collection of our individual happinesses. Yeah, and you, and you talk about the triumph of nihilism, and, and I'm assuming that's what we're dealing with today. You say the chief advantage of cultural relativism is also its greatest difficulty. Hmm. How so? So many of my students are cultural, they call themselves progressives on one hand and call themselves cultural relativists on the other. And I'll say, well, uh, if you're a progressive, you believe there's better and worse. Some societies are better than, well, yeah, but they don't really want to say that because what they think is that each society gets to make its own rules and one society cannot criticize another society, that that would violate their. So the problem with cultural relativism is it sounds very modern. It sounds it's the kind of thing anthropologists like to defend, mm -hmm. though in the Troberland Islands they do it this way. But at the end, even if they make up some of the data, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. as Pretty I true. recall, right? Yeah. You can ask Margaret Mead about that. <laughs> exactly. But at the end of the day, cultural relativism is the single most conservative philosophy imaginable because it says whatever a society decides is what is true. And the, the revolutionary, or the, or, or the, even the uh, the, mm -hmm. the Gandhis and the Martin Luther Kings and the, and the Jesuses, they're always wrong by definition because they never agree with what the prevailing morality is. Well, then, how do they criticize fascists or Nazis? Yeah, uh, th when you wind up in a deeper conversation with them, they'll just say, "Well, I don't like it personally." Yeah. You say also, and this was the point you just made before, and I want to ask, cultural relevance also entails the idea of moral progress is an illusion. Yeah. And again, like you said, I think a lot of people, I mean, most young people think why we don't need to know history and why we don't care about what these old people say right. is because we're smarter and better and everything is getting better and <laughs> yeah. we're progressing yes. in this kind of progressive theology. Man is is becoming the uberman. Yes, very much so. And if, and if there's better, than wor better and worse, we're better today than we were 50 years ago, there has to be some objective standard by which you're measuring the two outside of those two societies. Why is it, though, that it seems like it's okay for us to either look inward and attack our own society or Western culture, which most of it come out of, mm -hmm. while we can't do that to any other culture. Yeah, that's that's the paradox. I can't explain it. I mean, I can offer what I think might be some social reasons for it, but it's it's at its heart, it doesn't make sense, does it? Mm -hmm. No, it it seems to be self-defeating. Is it because people feel guilty? I think that's part of it. I think there's this um, desire to want to get outside of where they're at and at the same time hold on to some notion of objective mm. truth. But it's, uh, it, it is the, 
I, have, I, I had a, a student in my class uh, earlier in the fall who was a diehard progressive and a diehard moral relativist, nihilist, there is no moral truth. And we'd have these discussions, and even the rest of the class, whatever their positions, came to see there has to be a moral truth. If there isn't, forget about even arguing. It's just you think this, I think that, let's have a fist fight. Right? I mean, and she wouldn't recognize, she just would uh, refuse to come to terms with the basic contradiction. Well, then at the end of the day, power decides what's true. Absolutely. And that was Hobbes. Right. right. Hobbes' solution was give it to the state and let's sort it out and we'll all be secure at least. Maybe not free, but secure. Okay. You also uh, have, uh, have a new book that you're working on, too. Yeah. What is that about? Uh, it's it called uh, Why We're Losing the Constitution, and it's a, uh, a, it's a history, really, of the progressive movement. It's a history of the Constitution through the lens of the development of the progressive movement and how it was synthesized into the American tradition. What we have today is not the Constitution as the, the framers uh, believed it. And, and it's, it's uh, I mean, just fundamentally different. The goals are different. The whole top-down rationale of modern progressive constitutionalism is is deeply inimical to uh, to the, fr the framers' idea of self-government. So would you define yourself as a strict constructionist, a textualist? What would you be in that? Well, I mean, I, th I think these debates are interesting. I think that, that I'm not a living constitutionalist, that's for sure. Mm -hmm. um, I think that textualism doesn't always I mean, there are debates among textualists about mm -hmm. certain, and that's reasonable, right? There should be, because you there may be where, where the historical record is unclear, you can wind up with two, but I think that uh, there's sort of, I, I guess I would say a circle, mm -hmm. that certain possibilities within within the the, the circle are, are acceptable. There's some things that are just made up, Roe v. Wade. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And we shall see yeah. uh, at the time of this taping. Thank, Thank you so you. much, Professor John Lawrence Hill, My for the pleasure. book. After the Natural Law, How the Classical Worldview Supports Our Modern Moral and Political Values, uh, available through the EWTN Religious Catalog, published by Ignatius Press. I'm Doug Keck. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time right here on Bookmark. Thanks.